Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax and enjoy as you fall asleep. Today we are reading from the book Moby Dick. We'll be reading chapters 37 to 42. Published in 1851, Moby Dick was based in part on author Herman Melville's own experiences on a whale ship. The novel tells the story of Ahab, the captain of a whaling vessel called the Pequod, who has a three-year mission to collect and sell the valuable oil of whales at the behest of the ship's owners. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ underscore media underscore podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 37 Sunset The Cabin by the stern windows, Ahab sitting alone and gazing out. I leave a white and turbid wake, pale waters, paler cheeks, where'er I sail. The envious billows sidelong swell to wall my track, let them, but first I pass. Yonder, by ever brimming goblet's rim, the warm waves blush like wine. The gold brow plums the blue. The diver's sun, slow dive from noon, goes down, my soul mounts up. She wearies with her endless hill. Is, then, the crown too heavy that I wear? This iron crown of Lombardy. Yet is it bright with many a gem, I the wearer, see not its far flashings, but darkly feel that I wear that, that dazzlingly confounds. Tis iron, that I know, not gold. Tis split, too, that I feel, the jagged edge calls me so, my brain seems to beat against the solid metal, I, steel skull, mine, the sort that needs no helmet in the most brain-battering fight. Dry heat upon my brow? Oh! Time was, when as the sunrise nobly spurred me, so the sunset soothed. No more. This lovely light, it lights not me, all loveliness is anguish to me, since I can ne'er enjoy. Gifted with the high perception, I lack the low, enjoying power, damned, most subtly and most malignantly. Damned in the midst of paradise. Good night, good night. Waving his hand, he moves from the window. Twas not so hard a task. I thought to find one stubborn, at the least, but my one cod circle fits into all their various wheels, and they revolve. Or, if you will, like so many anthills of powder, they all stand before me, and I there match. Oh, hard! That to fire others, the match itself must needs be wasting. What I've dared, I've willed, and what I've willed, I'll do. They think me mad, Starbuck does. But I'm demoniac, I am madness maddened. That wild madness that's only calm to comprehend itself. 
The prophecy was that I should be dismembered, and I, I lost this leg. I now prophesy that I will dismember my dismemberer. Now, then, be the prophet and the fulfiller one. That's more than ye, ye great gods, ever were. I laugh and hoot at ye, ye cricket players, ye pugilists, ye deaf burks and blinded bendigos. I will not say as schoolboys do to bullies, take some of your own size, don't pummel me. No, Eve ye knocked me down, and I am up again, but ye have run and hidden. Come forth from behind your cotton bags. I have no long gun to reach ye. Come, Ahab's compliments to ye, come and see if ye can swerve me. Swerve me? Ye cannot swerve me, else ye swerve yourselves. Man has ye there. Swerve me? The path to my fixed purpose is laid with iron rails, whereon my soul is grooved to run. Over unsound gorges, through the rifled hearts of mountains, under torrents' beds, unerringly I rush. Knots an obstacle, knots an angle to the iron way. Chapter 38 Dusk By the mainmast, Starbuck leaning against it. My soul is more than matched. She's overment, and by a madman. Insufferable sting, that sanity should ground arms on such a field. But he drilled deep down, and blasted all my reason out of me. I think I see his impious end, but feel that I must help him to it. Will I, nil I, the ineffable thing has tied me to him, toes me with a cable I have no knife to cut. Horrible old man. Who's over him? He cries. I, he would be a democrat to all above. Look, how he lords it over all below. Oh, I plainly see my miserable office to obey, rebelling, and worse yet, to hate with touch of pity. For in his eyes I read some lurid woe would shrivel me up had I it. Yet is there hope. Time and tide flow wide. The hated whale has the round watery world to swim in as the small goldfish has its glassy globe. His heaven-insulting purpose, God may wedge aside. I would abhort were it not like lead. But my whole clock's run down, my heart the all-controlling weight, I have no key to lift again. A burst of revelry from the forecastle. Oh, God! To sail with such a heathen crew that a small touch of human mothers in them. Whelped somewhere by the sharkish sea. The white whale is their demigorgon. Hark! The infernal orgies. That revelry is forward. Mark the unfaltering silence aft. Methinks it pictures life. Foremost through the sparkling sea shoots on the gay, embattled, bantering bow, but only to drag dark Ahab after it, where he broods within his sternward cabin, builded over the dead water of the wake, and further on, hunted by its wolfish gurglings. The long howl thrills me through. Peace, ye revelers, and set the watch. Oh, life, tis in an hour like this, with soul beat down and held to knowledge 
as wild, untutored things are forced to feed, oh, life. Tis now that I do feel the latent horror in thee. But tis not me. That horror's out of me. And with the soft feeling of the human in me, yet will I try to fight ye, ye grim, phantom futures. Stand by me, hold me, bind me, O ye blessed influences. Chapter 39 First Night Watch For Top Stubbed Solace and Many a Brace Ah 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 M Clear my throat, I've been thinking over it ever since, and that ah Ah's the final consequence. Why so? Because a laugh's the wisest, easiest answer to all that's queer, and come what will, one comfort's always left, that unfailing comfort is, it's all predestinated. I heard not all his talk with Starbuck, but to my poor eye Starbuck then looked something as I the other evening felt. Be sure the old mogul has fixed him, too. I tweaked it, knew it, had had the gift, might readily have prophesied it, for when I clapped my eye upon his skull, I saw it. Well, Stubb, why Stubb, that's my title. Well, Stubb, what it, Stubb? Here's a carcass. I know not all that may be coming, but be it what it will, all good with laughing. Such a waggish leering as lurks in all your horribles. I feel funny. F.A. Law. Lyra. Skira. What's my juicy little pair at home doing now? Crying its eyes out, giving a party to the last arrived harpooners, I dare say, gay as a frigate's pennant, and so am I, F.A. Law. Lyra. Skira. Oh. We'll drink tonight with hearts as light. To love, as gay and fleeting as bubbles that swim on the beaker's brim and break on the lips while meeting. A brave stave that, who calls? Mr. Starbuck? I, I, sir, aside, he's my superior, he has his too, if I'm not mistaken. I, I, sir, just through with this job, coming. Chapter 40 Midnight, Folk Soul Harpooners and Sailors Forsel rises and discovers the watch standing, lounging, leaning, and lying in various attitudes, all singing in chorus. Farewell and adieu to you, Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to you, ladies of Spain. Our captain's commanded dot. First Nantucket Sailor Oh, boys, don't be sentimental. It's bad for the digestion. Take a tonic, follow me. Sings, and I'll follow. Our captain stood upon the deck. A spyglass in his hand. A viewing of those gallant whales. That blew at every strand. Oh, your tubs and your boats, my boys. And by your braces stand and we'll have one of those fine whales. Hand, boys, overhand. So, be cheery, my lads. May your hearts never fail.
while the bold harpooner is striking the whale. Mate's voice from the quarterdeck. Eight bells there, forward. Second Nantucket sailor. Avast the chorus. Eight bells there. Dear, bell boy. Strike the belly, thou pip. Thou blackling. And let me call the watch. I've the sort of mouth for that, the hogshead mouth. So, so, thrusts his head down the scuttle, starboleenshoy. Eight bells there below. Tumble up. Dutch sailor. Grand snoozing tonight, Manny, fat night for that. I mark this in our old mobile's wine, it's quite as deadening to some as filliping to others. We sing, they sleep, I lie down there like ground tear butts. At him again. There, take this copper pump and hail him through it. Tell him to avast dreamy of their lasses. Tell him it's the resurrection, they must kiss their last and come to judgment. That's the way, that's it, thy throat ain't spoiled with eating Amsterdam butter. French sailor. Hist, boys. Let's have a jig or two before we ride to anchor in Blanket Bay. What say ye? There comes the other watch. Stand by all legs. Pip. Little Pip. Hurrah with your tambourine. Pip. Sulky and sleepy. Don't know where it is. French sailor. Beat thy belly, then, and wag thy ears. Jig it, men, I say, marries the word, hurrah. Damn me, won't he dance? Form, now, Indian file, and gallop into the double shuffle. Throw yourselves. Legs. Legs. Iceland sailor. I don't like your floor, Manny. It's too springy to my taste. I'm used to ice floors. I'm sorry to throw cold water on this subject, but excuse me. Maltese sailor. Me too, where's your girls? Who but a fool would take his left hand by his right and say to himself, how do you do? Partners. I must have partners. Sicilian sailor. I, girls in a green, then I'll hop with ye, yeah, turn grasshopper. Long Island Sailor. Well, well, ye sulkies, there's plenty more of us. Ho corn when you may, say I. All legs go to harvest soon. Oh. Here comes the music, now for it. Azor Sailor. Ascending and pitching the tambourine up the scuttle. Here you are, Pip, and there's the windless bits, up you mount. Now, boys. The half of them dance to the tambourine, some go below, some sleep or lie among the coils of rigging. Oh, say plenty. He's our sailor. Dancing, go it, Pip. Bang it, bell boy. Rig it. Stig it, stig it, quig it, bell boy. 
make fireflies, break the jinglers. Pip. Jinglers, you say, there goes another, dropped off, I pound it so. China sailor. Rattle thy teeth, then, and pound away, make a pagoda of thyself. French sailor. Merry mad. Hold up thy hoop, Pip, till I jump through it. Split jibs. Tear yourselves. Tash go. Quietly smoking. That's a white man. He calls that fun. Humph. I save my sweat. Old Manx sailor. I wonder whether those jolly lads bethink them of what they're dancing over. I'll dance over your grave. I will. That's the bitterest threat of your night women that be him wins round corners. Oh Christ. To think of the green navies and the green skull crews. Well, well, but like the whole world's a ball, as you scholars have it, and so tis right to make one ballroom of it. Dance on, lads, you're young, I was once. 3D Nantucket Sailor. Spell O, phew. This is worse than pulling after whales in a calm, give us a whiff, tash. They cease dancing and gather in clusters. Meantime, the sky darkens, the wind rises. Lasker Sailor. By Brahma. Boys, it'll be doused sail soon. The skyborn, high tide Ganges turn to wind. Thou showest thy black brow, Siva. Maltese Sailor. Reclining and shaking his cap. It's the waves, the snow's caps turn to jigging now. They'll shake their tassels soon. Now when all the waves were women, then I go drown and chas sea with them evermore. There's not so sweet on earth, heaven may not match it, as those swift glances of warm, wild bosoms in the dance, when the overarboring arms hide such ripe, bursting grapes. Sicilian Sailor Reclining. Tell me not of it. Hark ye, lad, fleet interlacings of the limbs, lithe swings, coins, flutterings. Lip. Heart. Hip. All graze, unceasing touch and go. Not taste, observe ye, else comes satiety. Eh, pagan? Nudging. Tahitan Sailor, reclining on mat. Hail, holy nakedness of our dancing girls, the Heva Heva. Ah, low-veiled, high palm Tahiti. I still rest me on thy mat, but the soft soil has slid. I saw thee woven in the wood, my mat. Green the first day I brought ye thence, now worn and wilted quite. Ah me, not thou nor I can bear the change. How then, if so be transplanted to yon sky? Here are the roaring streams from Pyrohides' peak of spears, when they leap down the crags and drown the villages, the blast. The blast. Up, spine, and meet it. Leaps to his feet. Portuguese sailor. 
how the sea rolls swashing gains the side. Stand by for reefing, hearties. The winds are just crossing swords, pell-mell they'll go lunging presently. Danish sailor. Crack, crack, old ship. So long as thou crackest, thou holdest. Well done. The mate there holds ye to it stiffly. He's no more afraid than the Al Fort at Kattegat, put there to fight the Baltic with storm-lashed guns on which the sea salt cakes. Fourth Nantucket sailor. He has his orders, mind ye that. I heard old Ahab tell him he must always kill a squall, something as they burst a water spout with a pistol, fire your ship right into it. English sailor. Blood. But that old man's a grand old cove. We are the lads to hunt him up as whale. All. Aye. Aye. Old Manx sailor. How the three pines shake. Pines are the hardest sort of tree to live when shifted to any other soil, and here there's none but the crew's cursed clay. Steady, helmsman. Steady. This is the sort of weather when brave hearts snap ashore and keeled hulls split at sea. Our captain has his birthmark. Look yonder, boys, there's another in the sky, lurid like, ye see, all else pitch black. Dagoo. What of that? Who's afraid of blacks afraid of me? I'm quarried out of it. Spanish sailor. Aside. He wants to bully. Ah, the old grudge makes me touchy, advancing. I, harpooner, thy race is the undeniable dark side of mankind, devilish dark at that. No offense. Dagoo. Grimly. None. Estiago Sailor. That Spaniard's mad or drunk. But that can't be, or else in his one case our old mobile's fire waters are somewhat long in working. Fifth Nantucket Sailor. What's that I saw, lightning? Yes. Spanish Sailor. No, Degu's showing his teeth. Dagoo, springing. Swallow thine, mannequin. White skin, white liver. Spanish sailor, meaning him. Knife thee heartily. Big frame, small spirit. All. A row. A row. A row. Tashtego with a whiff. A row low and a row aloft, gods and men, both brawlers. Humph. Belfast sailor. A row. Are a row. The virgin be blessed, a row. Plunge him with ye. English sailor. Fair play. Snatch the Spaniard's knife. A ring, a ring. Old Manx sailor. Ready formed. There. The ringed horizon. In that ring Cain struck Abel. Sweet work, right work. No. Why then, God, madst thou the ring? 
mate's voice from the quarterdeck. Hands by the halyards. In topgallant sails. Stand by the reef topsails. All. The squall. The squall. Jump, my jollies. They scatter. PIP shrinking under the windlass. Jollies? Lord help such jollies. Crish, crash. There goes the jib's day. Blang wang. God. Duck lower, pip, here comes the royal yard. It's worse than being in the world woods the last day of the year. Who'd go climbing after chestnuts now? But there they go, all cursing, and here I don't. Fine prospects to him, they're on the road to heaven. Hold on hard. Jiminy, what a squall. But those chaps there are worse yet, they're your white squalls, they. White squalls. White whale, sure. Sure. Here have I heard all their chat just now, and the white whale, sure. Sure, but spoken of once. And only this evening, it makes me jingle all over like my tambourine, that anaconda of an old man swore him into hunt him. Oh, thou big white god aloft there somewhere in yon darkness, have mercy on this small black boy down here, preserve him from all men that have no bowels to feel fear. Chapter 41 Moby Dick I, Ishmael, was one of that crew, my shouts had gone up with the rest, my oath had been welded with theirs, and stronger I shouted, and more did I hammer and clinch my oath, because of the dread in my soul. A wild, mystical, sympathetical feeling was in me, Ahab's quenchless feud seemed mine. With greedy years I learned the history of that murderous monster against whom I and all the others had taken our oaths of violence and revenge. For some time past, though at intervals only, the unaccompanied, secluded white whale had haunted those uncivilized seas mostly frequented by the sperm whale fishermen. But not all of them knew of his existence, only a few of them, comparatively, had knowingly seen him, while the number who as yet had actually and knowingly given battle to him was small indeed. For, owing to the large number of whale cruisers, the disorderly way they were sprinkled over the entire watery circumference, many of them adventurously pushing their quest along solitary latitudes, so as seldom or never for a whole twelve-month or more on a stretch, to encounter a single news-telling sail of any sort, the inordinate length of each separate voyage, the irregularity of the times of sailing from home, all these, with other circumstances, direct and indirect, long obstructed the spread through the whole worldwide whaling fleet of the special individualizing tidings concerning Moby Dick. It was hardly to be doubted that several vessels reported to have encountered at such or such a time or on such or such a meridian a sperm whale of uncommon magnitude and malignity which whale, after doing great mischief to his assailants, had completely escaped them, to some minds it was not an unfair presumption, I say, that the whale in question must have been no other than Moby Dick. 
Yet as of late the sperm whale fishery had been marked by various and not unfrequent instances of great ferocity, cunning, and malice in the monster attacked. Therefore it was that those who by accident ignorantly gave bow to Moby Dick, such hunters, perhaps, for the most part, were content to ascribe the peculiar terror he bred, more, as it were, to the perils of the sperm whale fishery at large, than to the individual cause. In that way, mostly, the disastrous encounter between Ahab and the whale had hitherto been popularly regarded. And as for those who, previously hearing of the white whale, by chance caught sight of him, in the beginning of the thing they had every one of them, almost, as boldly and fearlessly lowered for him as for any other whale of that species. But at length, such calamities did ensue in these assaults, not restricted to sprained wrists and ankles, broken limbs, or devouring amputations, but fatal to the last degree of fatality, those repeated disastrous repulses, all accumulating and piling their terrors upon Moby Dick, those things had gone far to shake the fortitude of many brave hunters to whom the story of the white whale had eventually come. Nor did wild rumors of all sorts fail to exaggerate and still the more horrify the true histories of these deadly encounters. For not only do fabulous rumors naturally grow out of the very body of all surprising terrible events as the smitten tree gives birth to its fungi, but in maritime life, far more than in that of terra firma, wild rumors abound wherever there is any adequate reality for them to cling to. And as the sea surpasses the land in this matter, so the whale fishery surpasses every other sort of maritime life in the wonderfulness and fearfulness of the rumors which sometimes circulate there. For not only are whalemen as a body unexempt from that ignorance and superstitiousness hereditary to all sailors, but of all sailors, they are by all odds the most directly brought into contact with whatever is appallingly astonishing in the sea, face to face they not only at its greatest marvels, but hand to jaw, give battle to them. Alone, in such remotest waters, that though you sailed a thousand miles, and passed a thousand shores, you would not come to any chiseled hearthstone, or a hospitable beneath that part of the sun, in such latitudes and longitudes, pursuing to such a calling as he does, the whale-man is wrapped by influences all tending to make his fancy pregnant with many a mighty birth. No wonder, then, that ever gathering volume from the mere transit over the widest watery spaces, the outblown rumors of the white whale did in the end incorporate with themselves all manner of morbid hints and half-formed fetal suggestions of supernatural agencies, which eventually invested Moby Dick with new terrors unborrowed from anything that visibly appears. So that in many cases such a panic did he finally strike, that few who by those rumors, at least, had heard of the white whale, few of those hunters were willing to encounter the perils of his jaw. But there were still other and more vital practical influences at work. Not even at the present day has the original prestige of the sperm whale, as fearfully distinguished from all other species of the leviathan, died out of the minds of the whalemen as a body. There are those this day among them who, 
though intelligent and courageous enough in offering battle to the Greenland Beret Whale, would perhaps, either from professional inexperience or incompetency or timidity, decline a contest with the sperm whale. At any rate, there are plenty of whalemen, especially among those whaling nations not sailing under the American flag, who have never hostilely encountered the sperm whale, but whose sole knowledge of the Leviathan is restricted to the ignoble monster primitively pursued in the north, seated on their hatches, these men will hearken with a childish fireside interest and awe to the wild, strange tales of southern whaling. Nor is the preeminent tremendousness of the great sperm whale anywhere more feelingly comprehended than on board of those prows which stem him. And as if the now tested reality of his might had in former legendary times thrown its shadow before it, we find some book naturalists, Olassen and Povelson, declaring the sperm whale not only to be a consternation to every other creature in the sea, but also to be so incredibly ferocious as continually to be a thirst for human blood. Nor even down to so late a time as Cuvier's, were these or almost similar impressions effaced. For in his natural history, the Baron himself affirms that at sight of the sperm whale, all fish, sharks included, are struck with the most lively terrors, and often in the precipitancy of their flight dash themselves against the rocks with such violence as to cause instantaneous death. And however the general experiences in the fishery may amend such reports as these, yet in their full terribleness, even to the bloodthirsty item of Povelson, the superstitious belief in them is, in some vicissitudes of their vocation, revived in the minds of the hunters so that overawed by the rumors and portents concerning him, not a few of the fishermen recalled, in reference to Moby Dick, the earlier days of the sperm whale fishery, when it was oftentimes hard to induce long-practiced right whalemen to embark in the perils of this new and daring warfare, such men protesting that although other leviathans might be hopefully pursued, yet to chase and point lance at such an apparition as the sperm whale was not for mortal man. That to attempt it would be inevitably to be torn into a quick eternity. On this head, there are some remarkable documents that may be consulted. Nevertheless, some there were who even in the face of these things were ready to give chase to Moby Dick and a still greater number who, chancing only to hear of him distantly and vaguely, without the specific details of any certain calamity, and without superstitious accompaniments, were sufficiently hardy not to flee from the battle if offered. One of the wild suggestions referred to, as at last coming to be linked with the white whale in the minds of the superstitiously inclined, was the unearthly conceit that Moby Dick was ubiquitous, that he had actually been encountered in opposite latitudes at one and the same instant of time. Nor, credulous as such minds must have been, was this conceit altogether without some faint show of superstitious probability. For as the secrets of the currents and the seas have never yet been divulged, even to the most erudite research, so the hidden ways of the sperm whale when beneath the surface remain, in great part, unaccountable to his pursuers, and from time to time have originated the most curious and contradictory speculations regarding them, especially concerning the mystic modes whereby, after sounding to a great depth, 
He transports himself with such vast swiftness to the most widely distant points. It is a thing well known to both American and English whale ships, and as well a thing placed upon authority of record years ago by Scoresby that some whales have been captured far north in the Pacific, in whose bodies have been found the barbs of harpoons darted in the Greenland seas. Nor is it to be gainsaid that in some of these instances it has been declared that the interval of time between the two assaults could not have exceeded very many days. Hence, by inference, it has been believed by some whalemen that the Norwest Passage, so long a problem to man, was never a problem to the whale. So that here, in the real living experience of living men, the prodigies related in old times of the inland Strelo Mountain in Portugal, near whose top there was said to be a lake in which the wrecks of ships floated up to the surface, and that still more wonderful story of the Arethusa fountain near Syracuse, whose waters were believed to have come from the Holy Land by an underground passage. These fabulous narrations are almost fully equaled by the realities of the whalemen. Forced into familiarity, then, with such prodigies as these, and knowing that after repeated, intrepid assaults, the white whale had escaped alive, it cannot be much matter of surprise that some whalemen should go still further in their superstitions, declaring Moby Dick not only ubiquitous, but immortal, for immortality is but ubiquity in time, that though groves of spears should be planted in his flanks, he would still swim away unharmed, or if indeed he should ever be made to spout thick. Blood, such a sight would be but a ghastly deception, for again in uninsanguined billows hundreds of leagues away, his unsullied jet would once more be seen. But even stripped of these supernatural surmisings, there was enough in the earthly make and incontestable character of the monster to strike the imagination with unwanted power. For it was not so much his uncommon bulk that so much distinguished him from other sperm whales, but, as was elsewhere thrown out, a peculiar snow-white wrinkled forehead and a high, pyramidical white hump. These were his prominent features, the tokens whereby, even in the limitless, uncharted seas, he revealed his identity at a long distance to those who knew him. The rest of his body was so streaked and spotted and marbled with the same shrouded hue that, in the end, he had gained his distinctive appellation of the white whale, a name, indeed, literally justified by his vivid aspect, when seen gliding at high noon through a dark blue sea, leaving a milky way wake of creamy foam, all spangled with golden gleamings. Nor was it his unwanted magnitude, nor his remarkable hue, nor yet his deformed lower jaw, that so much invested the whale with natural terror, as that unexampled, intelligent malignity which, according to specific accounts, he had over and over again evinced in his assaults. More than all, his treacherous retreat struck more dismay than perhaps aught else. For, when swimming before his exulting pursuers, with every apparent symptom of alarm, he had several times been known to turn round suddenly and, bearing down upon them, either stave their boats to splinters or drive them back in consternation to their ship. Already several fatalities had attended his chase. But those similar disasters, however little brooded ashore, were by no means unusual in the fishery. 
Yet, in most instances, such seemed the white whale's infernal aforethought of ferocity that every dismembering or death that he caused was not wholly regarded as having been inflicted by an unintelligent agent. Judge, then, to what pitches of inflamed, distracted fury the minds of his more desperate hunters were impelled when amid the chips of chewed boats and the sinking limbs of torn comrades, they swam out of the white curds of the whale's direful wrath into the serene, exasperating sunlight that smiled on as if at a birth or a bridal. His three boats dove around him, and oars and men both whirling in the eddies, one captain, seizing the line knife from his broken prow, had dashed at the whale as an Arkansas duelist at his foe, blindly seeking with a six-inch blade to reach the fathom-deep life of the whale. That captain was Ahab. And then it was that suddenly sweeping his sickle-shaped lower jaw beneath him, Moby Dick had reaped away Ahab's leg as a mower a blade of grass in the field. No turban Turk, no hired Venetian or Malay could have smote him with more seeming malice. Small reason was there to doubt, then, that ever since that almost fatal encounter, Ahab had cherished a wild vindictiveness against the whale, all the more fell for that in his frantic morbidness he at last came to identify with him, not only all his bodily woes, but all his intellectual and spiritual exasperations. The white whale swam before him as the monomaniac incarnation of all those malicious agencies which some deep men feel eating in them till they are left living on with half a heart and half a lung. That intangible malignity which has been from the beginning, to whose dominion even the modern Christians ascribe one half of the worlds, which the ancient Ophites of the East reverenced in their statue devil, Ahab did not fall down and worship it like them, but deliriously transferring its idea to the abhorred white whale, he pitted himself, all mutilated, against it. All that most maddens and torments, all that stirs up the lees of things, all truth with malice in it, all that cracks the sinews and cakes the brain, all the subtle demonisms of life and thought, all evil, to crazy Ahab, were visibly personified and made practically assailable in Moby Dick. He piled upon the whale's white hump the sum of all the general rage and hate felt by his whole race from Adam down, and then, as if his chest had been a mortar, he burst his hot heart's shell upon it. It is not probable that this monomania in him took its instant rise at the precise time of his bodily dismemberment. Then, in darting at the monster, knife in hand, he had but given loose to a sudden, passionate, corporal animosity, and when he received the stroke that tore him, he probably but felt the agonizing bodily laceration, but nothing more. Yet. When by this collision forced to turn towards home, and for long months of days and weeks, Ahab and Anguish lay stretched together in one hammock, rounding in midwinter that dreary, howling Patagonian cape, then it was that his torn body and gashed soul bled into one another, and so interfusing made him mad. That it was only then, on the homeward voyage, after the encounter, that the final monomania seized him, seems all but certain from the fact that, at intervals during the passage, he was a raving lunatic, and, though unlimbed of a leg, 
yet such vital strength yet lurked in his Egyptian chest, and was moreover intensified by his delirium that his mates were forced to lace him fast, even there, as he sailed, raving in his hammock. In a straitjacket, he swung to the mad rockings of the gales. And, when running into more sufferable latitudes, the ship, with mild stunsails spread, floated across the tranquil tropics, and, to all appearances, the old man's delirium seemed left behind him with the Cape Horn swells, and he came forth from his dark den into the blessed light and air, even then, when he bore that firm, collected front, however pale, and issued his calm orders once again, and his mates thanked God the direful madness was now gone, even then, Ahab, in his hidden self, raved. On. Human madness is oftentimes a cunning and most feline thing. When you think it fled, it may have but become transfigured into some still subtler form. Ahab's full lunacy subsided not, but deepeningly contracted, like the unabated Hudson when that noble northman flows narrowly but unfathomably through the highland gorge. But, as in his narrow-flowing monomania, not one jot of Ahab's broad madness had been left behind, so in that broad madness, not one jot of his great natural intellect had perished. That before living agent now became the living instrument. If such a furious trope may stand, his special lunacy stormed his general sanity and carried it and turned all its concentric cannon upon its own mad mark, so that far from having lost his strength, Ahab, to that one end, did now possess a thousandfold more potency than ever he had sanely brought to bear upon any one reasonable object. This is much, yet Ahab's larger, darker, deeper part remains unhinted. But vain to popularize profundities, and all truth is profound. Winding far down from within the very heart of this spiked hotel to Cluny where we here stand, however grand and wonderful, now quit it and take your way, ye nobler, sadder souls, to those vast Roman halls of Therms where far beneath the fantastic towers of man's upper earth, his root of grandeur, his whole awful essence sits in bearded state, an antique buried beneath antiquities and thrown on torsos. So with a broken throne, the great gods mocked the captive king, so like a caryatid, he patient sits, upholding on his frozen brow the piled entablatures of ages. Wind ye down there, ye prouder, sadder souls. Question that proud, sad king. A family likeness. I, he did beget ye, ye young exiled royalties, and from your grim sire only will the old state secret come. Now, in his heart, Ahab had some glimpse of this, namely, all my means are sane, my motive and my object mad. Yet without power to kill, or change, or shun the fact, he likewise knew that to mankind he did long dissemble, in some sort, did still. But that thing of his dissembling was only subject to his perceptibility, not to his will determinate. Nevertheless, so well did he succeed in that dissembling, that when with ivory leg he stepped ashore at last, no Nantucket or thought him otherwise than but naturally grieved, and that to the quick, with the terrible casualty which had overtaken him. 
The report of his undeniable delirium at sea was likewise popularly ascribed to a kindred cause. And so, too, all the added moodiness which always afterwards, to the very day of sailing in the Pequot on the present voyage, sat brooding on his brow. Nor is it so very unlikely that far from distrusting his fitness for another whaling voyage on account of such dark symptoms, the calculating people of that prudent isle were inclined to harbor the conceit that for those very reasons he was all the better qualified and set on edge for a pursuit so full of rage and wildness as the bloody hunt of whales. Nod within and scorched without, with the infixed, unrelenting fangs of some incurable idea, such an one, could he be found, would seem the very man to dart his iron and lift his lance against the most appalling of all brutes. Or, if for any reason thought to be corporeally incapacitated for that, yet such an one would seem superlatively competent to cheer and howl on his underlings to the attack. But be all this as it may, certain it is, that with the mad secret of his unabated rage bolted up and keyed in him, Ahab had purposely sailed upon the present voyage with the one only and all-engrossing object of hunting the white whale. Had any one of his old acquaintances on shore but half dreamed of what was lurking in him then, how soon would their aghast and righteous souls have wrenched the ship from such a fiendish man? They were bent on profitable cruises, the profit to be counted down in dollars from the mint. He was intent on an audacious, immitigable, and supernatural revenge. Here, then, was this gray-headed, ungodly old man chasing with curses a job's whale round the world at the head of a crew, too, chiefly made up of mongrel renegades and castaways and cannibals, morally enfeebled also by the incompetence of mere unaided virtue or right-mindedness in Starbuck, the invulnerable jollity of indifference and recklessness in Stubb, and the pervading mediocrity in Flask. Such a crew, so officered, seemed specially picked and packed by some infernal fatality to help him to his monomaniac revenge. How it was that they so aboundingly responded to the old man's ire, by what evil magic their souls were possessed, that at times his hate seemed almost theirs, the white whale as much their insufferable foe as his, how all this came to be, what the white whale was to them, or how to their unconscious understandings, also, in some dim, unsuspected way, he might have seemed the gliding great demon of the seas of life, all this to explain, would be to dive deeper than Ishmael can go. The subterranean miner that works in us all, how can one tell whither leads his shaft by the ever-shifting, muffled sound of his pick? Who does not feel the irresistible arm drag? What skiff and toe of a 74 can stand still? For one, I gave myself up to the abandonment of the time and the place, but while yet all a rush to encounter the whale, could see not in that brute but the deadliest ill. Chapter 42 The Whiteness of the Whale What the white whale was to Ahab has been hinted, what, at times, he was to me, as yet remains unsaid. Aside from those more obvious considerations touching Moby Dick, which could not but occasionally awaken in any man's soul some alarm, there was another thought, or rather vague, nameless horror concerning him, which at times by its intensity completely overpowered all the rest, 
and yet so mystical and well-nigh ineffable was it that I almost despair of putting it in a comprehensible form. It was the whiteness of the whale that above all things appalled me. But how can I hope to explain myself here, and yet, in some dim, random way, explain myself I must, else all these chapters might be not. Though in many natural objects, whiteness refiningly enhances beauty, as if imparting some special virtue of its own, as in marbles, japonicas, and pearls, and though various nations have in some way recognized a certain royal preeminence in this hue, even the barbaric, grand old kings of Pegu placing the title Lord of the White Elephants above all their other magniloquent ascriptions of dominion, and the modern kings of Siam unfurling the same snow-white quadruped in the royal standard, and the Hanoverian flag bearing the one figure of a snow-white charger, and the great Austrian empire, Caesarian, heir to overlording Rome, having for the imperial color the same imperial hue, and though this preeminence in it applies to the human race itself, giving the white man ideal mastership over every dusky tribe. And though, besides, all this, whiteness has been even made significant of gladness, for among the Romans a white stone marked a joyful day, and though in other mortal sympathies and symbolizings, this same hue is made the emblem of many touching, noble things, the innocence of brides, the benignity of age, though among the red men of America the giving of the white belt of wampum was the deepest pledge of honor, though in many climes, whiteness typifies the majesty of justice in the of The judge, and contributes to the daily state of kings and queens drawn by milk-white steeds, though even in the higher mysteries of the most august religions it has been made the symbol of the divine spotlessness and power. By the Persian fire worshippers, the white forked flame being held the holiest on the altar, and in the Greek mythologies, great Jove himself being made incarnate in a snow-white bull, and though to the noble Iroquois, the midwinter sacrifice of the sacred white dog was by far the holiest festival of their theology, that spotless, faithful creature being held the purest envoy they could send to the great spirit with the annual tidings of their own fidelity, and though directly from the Latin. Word for white, all Christian priests derive the name of one part of their sacred vesture, the alb or tunic, worn beneath the cassock, and though among the holy pomps of the Romish faith, white is specially employed in the celebration of the Passion of our Lord, though in the vision of St. John, white robes are given to the redeemed, and the four Antoine elders stand clothed in white before the great white throne, and the holy one that sitteth there white like wool. Yet for all these accumulated associations, with whatever is sweet and honorable and sublime, there yet lurks an elusive something in the innermost idea of this hue, which strikes more a panic to the soul than that redness which affrights in blood. This elusive quality it is, which causes the thought of whiteness, when divorced from more kindly associations, and coupled with any object terrible in itself, to heighten that terror to the furthest bounds. Witness the white bear of the poles, and the white shark of the tropics, what but their smooth, flaky whiteness makes them the transcendent horrors they are. That ghastly whiteness it is which imparts such an abhorrent mildness, even more loathsome than terrific, to the dumb gloating of their aspect. 
so that not the fierce faint tiger in his heraldic coat can so stagger courage as the white shrouded bear or shark asterisk. Asterisk with reference to the polar bear, it may possibly be urged by him who would fain go still deeper into this matter that it is not the whiteness, separately regarded, which heightens the intolerable hideousness of that brute, for, analyzed, that heightened hideousness, it might be said, only rises from the circumstance that the irresponsible ferociousness of the creature stands invested in the fleece of celestial innocence and love, and hence, by bringing together two such opposite emotions in our minds, the polar bear frightens us with so unnatural a contrast. But even assuming all this to be true, yet, were it not for the whiteness, you would not have that intensified terror. As for the white shark, the white gliding ghostliness of repose in that creature, when beheld in his ordinary moods, strangely tallies with the same quality in the polar quadruped. This peculiarity is most vividly hit by the French and the name they bestow upon that fish. The Romish mass for the dead begins with requiem eternum, eternal rest, whence requiem denominating the mass itself and any other funeral music. Now, in allusion to the white, silent stillness of death in this shark and the mild deadliness of his habits, the French call him requin. Bethink thee of the albatross, whence come those clouds of spiritual wonderment and pale dread in which that white phantom sails in all imaginations? Not Coleridge first through that spell, but God's great, unflattering laureate, nature, asterisk. Asterisk, I remember the first albatross I ever saw. It was during a prolonged gale in water's heart upon the Antarctic seas. From my forenoon watch below, I ascended to the overclouded deck, and there, dashed upon the main hatches, I saw a regal, feathery thing of unspotted whiteness, and with a hooked, Roman bill sublime. At intervals, it arched forth its vast archangel wings, as if to embrace some holy ark. Wondrous flutterings and throbbings shook it. Though bodily unharmed, it uttered cries, as some king's ghost in supernatural distress. Through its inexpressible, strange eyes, Matthai peeped to secrets which took hold of God. As Abraham before the angels, I bowed myself, the white thing was so white, its wings so wide, and in those forever exiled waters, I had lost the miserable warping memories of traditions and of towns. Long I gazed at that prodigy of plumage. I cannot tell, can only hint, the things that darted through me then. But at last I awoke, and turning, asked a sailor what bird was this. A goni, he replied. Goni. Never had heard that name before, is it conceivable that this glorious thing is utterly unknown to men ashore? Never. But some time after, I learned that goni was some seaman's name for albatross so that by no possibility could Coleridge's wild rhyme have had aught to do with those mystical impressions which were mine when I saw that bird upon our deck. For neither had I then read the rhyme, nor knew the bird to be an albatross. Yet, in saying this, I do but indirectly burnish a little brighter the noble merit of the poem and the poet. 
I assert, then, that in the wondrous bodily whiteness of the bird chiefly lurks the secret of the spell, a truth the more evinced in this, that by a solecism of terms there are birds called grey albatrosses, and these I have frequently seen, but never with such emotions as when I beheld the Antarctic fowl. But how had the mystic thing been caught? Whisper it not, and I will tell, with a treacherous hook and line, as the fowl floated on the sea. At last the captain made a postman of it, tying a lettered, leathern tally round its neck, with the ship's time and place, and then letting it escape. But I doubt not, that leathern tally, meant for man, was taken off in heaven, when the white fowl flew to join the wing-folding, the invoking, and adoring cherubim. Most famous in our western annals and Indian traditions is that of the white steed of the prairies, a magnificent milk-white charger, large-eyed, small-headed, bluff-chested, and with the dignity of a thousand monarchs in his lofty, over-scorning carriage. He was the elected Xerxes of vast herds of wild horses, whose pastures in those days were only fenced by the Rocky Mountains and the Alleghenies. At their flaming head he westward trooped it like that chosen star which every evening leads on the hosts of light. The flashing cascade of his mane, the curving comet of his tail, invested him with housings more resplendent than gold and silver beaters could have furnished him. A most imperial and archangelical apparition of that unfallen western world, which to the eyes of the old trappers and hunters revived the glories of those primeval times when Adam walked majestic as a god, bluff-browed and fearless as this mighty steed. Whether marching amid his aides and marshals in the van of countless cohorts that endlessly streamed over the plains, like in Ohio, or whether with his circumambient subjects browsing all around at the horizon, the white steed gallopingly reviewed them with warm nostrils reddening through his cool milkiness, in whatever aspect he presented himself, always to the bravest Indians he was the object of trembling reverence and awe. Nor can it be questioned from what stands on legendary record of this noble horse, that it was his spiritual whiteness chiefly, which so clothed him with divineness, and that this divineness had that in it which, though commanding worship, at the same time enforced a certain nameless terror. But there are other instances where this whiteness loses all that accessory and strange glory which invests it in the white steed and albatross. What is it that in the albino man so peculiarly repels and often shocks the eye, as that sometimes he is loathed by his own kith and kin? It is that whiteness which invests him, a thing expressed by the name he bears. The albino is as well made as other men, has no substantive deformity, and yet this mere aspect of all-pervading whiteness makes him more strangely hideous than the ugliest abortion. Why should this be so? Nor, in quite other aspects, does nature in her least palpable but not the less malicious agencies fail to enlist among her forces this crying attribute of the terrible. From its snowy aspect, the gauntlet ghost of the southern seas has been denominated the white squall. Nor, in some historic instances, has the art of human malice omitted so potent an auxiliary. How wildly it heightens the effect of that passage in Froissart, 
when, masked in the snowy symbol of their faction, the desperate white hoods again murder their bailiff in the marketplace. Nor, in some things, does the common, hereditary experience of all mankind fail to bear witness to the supernaturalism of this hue. It cannot well be doubted that the one visible quality in the aspect of the dead which most appalls the gazer is the marble pallor of lingering there, as if indeed the pallor were as much like the badge of consternation in the other world as of mortal trepidation here. And from that pallor of the dead, we borrow the expressive hue of the shroud in which we wrap them. Nor even in our superstitions do we fail to throw the same snowy mantle round our phantoms, all ghosts rising in a milk-white fog, yeah, while these terrors seize us, let us add that even the king of terrors, when personified by the evangelist, rides on his pallid horse. Therefore, in his other moods, symbolize whatever grand or gracious thing he will by whiteness, no man can deny that in its profoundest idealized significance it calls up a peculiar apparition to the soul. But though without dissent this point be fixed, how is mortal man to account for it? To analyze it would seem impossible. Can we, then, by the citation of some of those instances wherein this thing of whiteness, though for the time either wholly or in great part stripped of all direct associations calculated to impart to it a fearful, but nevertheless, is found to exert over us the same sorcery, however modified, can we thus hope to light upon some chance clue to conduct us to the hidden cause we seek? Let us try. But in a matter like this, subtlety appeals to subtlety, and without imagination no man can follow another into these halls. And though, doubtless, some at least of the imaginative impressions about to be presented may have been shared by most men, yet few perhaps were entirely conscious of them at the time, and therefore may not be able to recall them now. Why to the man of untutored ideality, who happens to be but loosely acquainted with the peculiar character of the day, does the bare mention of Whitsuntide marshal in the fancy such long, dreary, speechless processions of slow-pacing pilgrims, downcast and hooded with new-fallen snow? Or, to the unread, unsophisticated Protestant of the Middle American states, why does the passing mention of a white friar or a white nun evoke such an eyeless statue in the soul? Or what is there apart from the traditions of dungeon warriors and kings, which will not wholly account for it, that makes the White Tower of London tell so much more strongly on the imagination of an untraveled American than those other storied structures, its neighbors, the Bywood Tower, or even the Bloody? And those sublimer towers, the White Mountains of New Hampshire, whence, in peculiar moods, comes that gigantic ghostliness over the soul at the bare mention of that name, while the thought of Virginia's Blue Ridge is full of a soft, dewy, distant dreaminess? Or why, irrespective of all latitudes and longitudes, does the name of the White Sea exert such a spectralness over the fancy, while that of the Yellow Sea lulls us with mortal thoughts of long lacquered mild afternoons on the waves, followed by the gaudiest and yet sleepiest of sunsets? Or, to choose a wholly unsubstantial instance, purely addressed to the fancy, why, in reading the old fairy tales of Central Europe, 
does the tall pale man of the heart's forests, whose changeless pallor unrustlingly glides through the green of the groves, why is this phantom more terrible than all the whooping imps of the Bloxburg? Nor is it, altogether, the remembrance of her cathedral toppling earthquakes, nor the stampedos of her frantic seas, nor the tearlessness of arid skies that never rain, nor the sight of her wide field of leaning spires, wrenched copestones, and crosses all adrip, like candid yards of anchored fleets, and her suburban avenues of house walls lying over upon each other as a toss pack of cards. It is not these things alone which make tearless Lima the strangest, saddest city thou canst. See, for Lima has taken the white veil, and there is a higher horror in this whiteness of her woe. Old as Pizarro, this whiteness keeps her ruins forever new, emits not the cheerful greenness of complete decay, spreads over her broken ramparts the rigid pallor of an apoplexy that fixes its own distortions. I know that, to the common apprehension, this phenomenon of whiteness is not confessed to be the prime agent in exaggerating the terror of objects otherwise terrible, nor to the unimaginative mind is there a terror in those appearances whose awfulness to another mind almost solely consists in this one phenomenon, especially when exhibited under any form at all approaching to muteness or universality. What I mean by these two statements may perhaps be respectively elucidated by the following examples. First, the mariner, when drawing nigh the coasts of foreign lands, yet by night he hear the roar of breakers, starts to vigilance, and feels just enough of trepidation to sharpen all his faculties, but under precisely similar circumstances, let him be called from his hammock to view his ship sailing through a midnight sea of milky whiteness, as if from encircling headland shoals of combed white bears were swimming round him. Then he feels a silent, superstitious dread, the shrouded phantom of. The whitened waters is horrible to him as a real ghost. In vain the lead assures him he is still off soundings. Art and Elm may both go down, he never rests till blue water is under him again. Yet where is the mariner who will tell thee, sir, it was not so much the fear of striking hidden rocks as the fear of that hideous whiteness that so stirred me? Second, to the native Indian of Peru, the continual sight of the snow out at Andes conveys not a dread, except, perhaps, in the mere fancying of the eternal frosted desolateness reigning at such vast altitudes, and the natural conceit of what a fearfulness it would be to lose oneself in such inhuman solitudes. Much the same is it with the backwoods man of the West, who with comparative indifference views an unbounded prairie sheeted with driven snow, no shadow of tree or twig to break the fixed trance of whiteness. Not so the sailor, beholding the scenery of the Antarctic seas, where at times, by some infernal trick of legerdemain in the powers of frost and air, he, shivering and half shipwrecked, instead of rainbows speaking hope and solace to his misery, views what seems a boundless churchyard grinning upon him with its lean ice monuments and splintered crosses. But thou sayest, methinks that white lead chapter about whiteness is but a white flag hung out from a craven soul, thou surrenderest to a hypo, Ishmael. Tell me, why this strong young colt, folded in some peaceful valley of Vermont, far removed from all beasts of prey, why is it that upon the sunniest day, 
if you but shake a fresh buffalo robe behind him so that he cannot even see it, but only smells its wild animal muskiness, why will he start, snort, and with bursting eyes paw the ground in frenzies of affright? There is no remembrance in him of any gorings of wild creatures in his green northern home so that the strange muskiness he smells cannot recall to him anything associated with the experience of former perils, for what knows he, this New England cult, of the black bisons of distant Oregon? No, but here thou beholdest even in a dumb brute the instinct of the knowledge of the demonism in the world. Though thousands of miles from Oregon, still when he smells that savage musk, the rending, goring bison herds are as present as to the deserted wild full of the prairies, which this instant they may be trampling into dust. Thus, then, the muffled rollings of a milky sea, the bleak rustlings of the festooned frosts of mountains, the desolate shiftings of the windrowed snows of prairies, all these, to Ishmael, or as the shaking of that buffalo robe to the frightened colt. Though neither knows where lie the nameless things of which the mystic sign gives forth such hints, yet with me, as with the colt, somewhere those things must exist. Though in many of its aspects this visible world seems formed in love, the invisible spheres were formed in fright. But not yet have we solved the incantation of this whiteness, and learn why it appeals with such power to the soul, and more strange and far more portentous, why, as we have seen, it is at once the most meaning symbol of spiritual things, nay, the very veil of the Christian's deity, and yet should be as it is, the intensifying agent in things the most appalling to mankind. Is it that by its indefiniteness it shadows forth the heartless voids and immensities of the universe, and thus stabs us from behind with the thought of annihilation, when beholding the white depths of the Milky Way? Or is it, that as in essence whiteness is not so much a color as the visible absence of color, and at the same time the concrete of all colors, is it for these reasons that there is such a dumb blankness, full of meaning, in a wide landscape of snows, a colorless, all color of atheism from which we shrink? And when we consider that other theory of the natural philosophers, that all other earthly hues, every stately or lovely emblazoning, the sweet tinges of sunset skies and woods. Yeah, and the gilded velvets of butterflies, and the butterfly cheeks of young girls, all these are but subtle deceits, not actually inherent in substances, but only laid on from without, so that all deified nature absolutely paints like the harlot, whose allurements cover nothing but the charnel house within. And when we proceed further, and consider that the mystical cosmetic which produces every one of her hues, the great principle of light, forever remains white or colorless in itself, and if operating without medium upon matter, would touch all objects, even tulips and roses, with its own blank tinge, pondering all this, the palsied universe lies before us a leper, and like willful travelers in Lapland, who refuse to wear colored and coloring glasses upon their eyes, so the wretched infidel. Jesus himself blind at the monumental white shroud that wraps all the prospect around him. And of all these things the albino whale was the symbol. Wonder ye then at the fiery hunt?